welcome to the Coaches Rising podcast. In today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Kim Barter, and we're going to be talking about shadow. Kim Barter is an internationally recognized expert on shadow. He's a psychotherapist and a teacher who's developed several successful new forms of highly effective and efficient therapy that, that work with shadow. So we'll talk about three forms of shadow, why it's important that we can distinguish between these different forms, because we want to make different moves with the different types. And if we make the wrong move, we actually might cause more harm than good. And I think as coaches, these forms of shadow will be showing up in our work. And so we can recognize them and be more informed around them. We'll talk a bit about parts work and in particular internal family systems. And I think Kim offers a beautiful suggestion on how you can deepen the impact of that kind of work. And we'll talk about shamanism, how some of the psychotherapeutic modes of shamanism are actually moving now into therapy. We'll also talk about how adult development theory connects to shadow. And that's something I want to just mention quickly now. I want to tell you about our live online coach training, which is enrolling now. We've had over 300 coaches join us. It's going to be running from May the 12th this year, 2022 to August the 29th. And it's really all about how can you apply adult development theory made popular by brilliant researchers like Robert Keegan and Suzanne Cook-Greuter to your work as a coach. I feel like these are the times when there is a real need for being able to support the developmental growth in a compassionate requisite way with our clients. And in particular, just to name this subject object move that Robert Keegan beautifully articulated that our clients construction of themselves and the world is constructed and they often don't see that. So the challenges that they come to us with are about this very way they're constructing this deep beliefs about who they are in the world. And so as a coach, you can learn through this program to begin to hear those deep constructions and reflect them back to your clients in a way that enables them to begin to to grow more spaciously beyond them to where their choice and empowerment opens up. So that's what this program is all about. I'm excited this year because we're really emphasizing complexity work and complexity genius because if it ain't obvious to you now we're we're living in these complex times so just to name some of the faculty we've got jennifer garvey berger bob anderson carolyn coughlin bina sharma tyson yunker porter thomas mcconkey amongst others and if you join you'll be able to take part in 17 live video workshops with coaching demos and you'll be able to interact with the teachers there's practice sessions everything's recorded and downloadable and transcribed so you can really immerse yourself in these sessions if you want to find out more enrollment is open now until the 11th of may this year and you can head to coachesrising.com forward slash art of developmental coaching to find out more all right let's dive in here is this podcast with kim Boiter. So Kim, it's really good to be with you today. I'm, you know, I'm just appreciating uh, our connection already as we, we we're just kind of checking in there. And so, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, thanks, Joel. I look forward to our conversation and and just what we can uh, create together. Mm, good, good. Maybe actually a good question to start off with would be just you could tell us a little about a little bit about who you are and and the work you do in the world and what moves you. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Joel. Yeah. Um, 
Well, uh, my name's Kim Barta, <laughs> and uh, I was raised on a farm and ranch in central Montana. So I come from an unusual background, I think, for this. And when I went to college, I went to school in a I, I got my undergrad. I got my undergrad in cultural anthropology. I was really fascinated with the study of culture, and with the study of all these cultures around the world and how they, just how they think and feel, and the mythologies and the and how they figure out how to create quality lives for themselves, and um, and and that was that was a fascinating journey in and of itself. And then I've always been kind of fascinated with the Native Americans, you know, because I live up in Montana and we have quite a few active tribal uh, people up here. So um, I, I've always been fascinated and, and uh, I've lived on the Native American reservation for 30 years now and uh, and um, and I've studied with them some and, and worked and helped them through their trauma a lot. But my uh, graduate program is in a really interesting mix of, of, um, of social work, counseling, and psychology. And it was, it was this combined program of, of, well, actually four programs, psychology, social work, counseling, and sociology. And then my undergrad was in cultural anthropology. So I felt like I got this really unique experience of, of seeing how all these fields emerge together in the, in the world of healing. And so I get to take, you know, kind of like the best of all of them. Uh, and I feel very fortunate about that because that program doesn't even exist anymore. And so it was, it was opened at a unique period where it just was, I was just feel fortunate that I got to be part of that. Hmm. And then I, then I lived with a Native American shaman for six months and studied with him for a while and um, did my master's thesis on shamanism as a psychotherapeutic, as a modern psychotherapeutic tool. And, um, and in that thesis, I predicted that modern psychology would start approaching what shamans have been doing for 30,000 years over the next 25 years. And it's been about 30 years now. And my predictions were pretty accurate, actually. They are pretty much duplicating shamanic, um, the, the psychotherapeutic aspect of shamanic techniques. And uh, we're starting to get, get close to what shamans, shamans were doing uh, many, many years ago. Could, I mean, that's fascinating. Could you say more about what you mean by that, what you, what you the aspects of shamanism that you feel are, you know, um, in the therapeutic field now? Yeah. So for example, shamans, they didn't have modern medicine. They did have a very sophisticated herbal medicine. And then they also had the, the plant medicine stuff that people talk about like ayahuasca and all of that, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the psychotherapeutic dynamic and they had a very, actually a very sophisticated psychotherapy um, protocol, a um, whole, whole field, actually, not a protocol, a whole field of psychotherapy um, that, that they've been studying. And if you actually study hunting and gathering societies, they work maybe 15 hours a week for all their needs. You know, we're working like 40, 80 hours a week, whatever we put in, right? They worked about 15 and the rest was, st was spent with 
you know, art and conversation and, and healing and just is creating beautiful community. So they actually, as a, as a group of people, had a lot more time to spend actually studying what helps make the mind a happy, healthy thing in uh, everyday life. And the shamans themselves, actually, the psychotherapeutic wing of shamanism, again, I talked about the diff- a few of the different wings of shamanism, the psychotherapeutic wing of shamanism um, actually used very sophisticated tools that the, even, even modern psychotherapy doesn't use yet today. They're getting close, though. And the one thing that the shamans were really masters at is how to use the senses in a symbolic manner to enact healing for the individual and the community simultaneously. And as you know, most psychotherapy is really focused on either the individual or doing group, but to do, do them simultaneously was really one of their art, uh, fine art uh, experiences. And to do that, incorporating all the senses in the rich world of symbolism. Yeah, that's beautiful. I'd like to ask you a bit more about that. And just to say that, you know, it, it reflects, should I say, on, I think, a lot of um, why people go to psychotherapy. And we're going to talk a lot about shadow today, shadow yeah, work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, perhaps is for treating some of the symptoms of our modern lifestyle where we're, you know, overworked, um, you know, hyped up, uh, pumped up, you know, and cortisol, mm-hmm. stressed out disconnected from from our communities and and a lacking a sense of meaning you know so it sounds like these cultures were you know it was a really kind of um integral or or like sophisticated system within which yeah that would then create well-being yeah it really was and and it's interesting because a lot of times our vision of hunting and gathering societies is different than it really was like some even professionals have said you know it was kind of rough and brutish and stuff it was actually very leisurely and uh, they had so much free time for just exploring what makes for a quality life um they did a lot of community stuff they had uh they had actually a richer diet than we do today if you study most hunting and gathering societies now the few that are remaining, like, you know, the Kalahari Bushmen, you know, they, they might have a little more limited because they lived in a desert. But when they study the people that lived in, you know, most of the rest of the world, um, you know, I mean, all across the Americas and stuff, their diet consisted of hundreds of different vegetables on a regular basis, on a yearly basis, where we might eat like 10 if, if we're health conscious, Right. If we're health conscious, we might eat 10 vegetables. You know, most people probably eat maybe three, you know, like maybe broccoli and lettuce, you know, and maybe something else, you know, beans once in a while, you know, but they had hundreds, you know, they had so many. Um, and that rich diversity of, of food and mineral rich food and nutrition rich food um, really was quite healthy. We know that during the agrarian revolution, actually our stature shrunk and our brain size shrunk because of the lack of nutrition compared. And we're still living from that. We're kind of recovering from, you know, this rich hunting and gathering society that was highly nutritious for most hunting and gathering people around the world to an agrarian society that that lived mostly on grains and our, our bodies, our body shrunk, our brain shrunk. And I think we're still in recovery of that 
um, as we get better and better nutrition now and our bodies are growing and our brains are growing again a little bit more. So, mm. um, yeah, I think we have some big lessons to learn from, from our ancient brothers and sisters. <laughs> and, and just before we get onto the topic of shadow, I'm just curious what you, you said about um, the, using the senses in a symbolic way. Could you just say a bit more what you mean by that? Mm, yeah. So, so our senses, we, we might imagine that we're perceiving reality, but our senses are picking up signals and then our brain has to process those signals and create images, sounds, all of that stuff is actually interpreted through the brain mechanism. If we look at neurobiology, it's interpreted through the brain mechanism. Then we create images, we create sound and meaning from those sounds in our brain. And so all of that is like a, a first level uh, sim symbolic dynamic uh, uh, from, from the direct sensory information. And then we have second level symbolic dynamics where we now make meaning or interpretation of that signal that's going into our brain. And then third, third level is, is how we even create symbols upon the symbols. So for example, your dreams and that kind of uh, dynamic, our fantasies in everyday life, kind of like a third level symbolic orientation. And so when we take a look at symbolic, symbolic worlds, these are the worlds that even though they're they're not directly connected with the external world because there's so many layers of, of symbolic um, um, translation going on. on. On another angle of looking at it, it's that deeply symbolic mind. The human mind is deeply symbolic and that's where so much of the richness of our life comes from. And so the shamans were really good at going in, working on this symbolic dynamic. Peoples around the world in hunting and gathering societies were doing dream work tens of thousands of years before uh, Freud made his great discovery that dreams were symbolic uh, reflections of the unconscious mind. Well, shamans have been doing that for 30 years. And that's what made him famous among psychiatry. Is, and that was just a hundred and what, 30 years ago or something, hundred yeah, something like that. Mm -hmm. So this is what launched the shadow movement actually was, was uh, Freud um, studying um, dreams and the unconscious symbolism of the dreams coming up into conscious, the unconscious mind creating symbolic visions in dreams to communicate with the conscious mind. Mm -hmm. And then of course, Jung, um, basically took Freud's concept of the, un, well, his work with the unconscious, and he basically renamed it the shadow. So the shadow and the unconscious are really the same thing, uh, even from Jung's perspective. Although in modern styles, some people say shadow and, and the unconscious are two different things, and they divide it out in different ways. Um, Jung himself said that shadow is the unconscious mind. But in modern society, sometimes people say shadow is just the disturbed, hidden parts of our mind. Yeah. Yeah. I think that could lead us into a really rich territory. I want to maybe, um, you know, like um, maybe ask some questions like what is shadow first? And we can get into that because, um, you know, just the reflection is 
you know, it seems like it feels like modernity is also stripped, uh, uh, like the world of of a kind of enchantment, you know, and and animism, you know, that 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 certain um, cultures had, which we've denigrated to being less sophisticated or superstitious, and but in that process, we've um, we've stripped out, you know, a lot of kind of meaning and and richness and depth in from our lives and the world we find ourselves in you know and then we find you know that there's massive levels of um lack of meaning that people find you know and, and materialism you know that kind of results from that i think so you know I, it feels like i think i'm situating what you're saying in terms of perhaps you know this this kind of changing paradigm we find ourselves in which you know, I, I wouldn't be able to say what the new paradigm is. You know, I think we're, we're still in a, perhaps in a kind of breaking down of modernity. But, you know, um, I find this fascinating, you know, like the, it gives me hope in a sense too, that, that you know, that we can actually begin to reclaim some of these, uh, these kind of geniuses of these cultures. You know? And I say, probably shouldn't say that because, you know, maybe um, in Western society, we never had them perhaps, but you know, we can be, we can learn and be influenced by some of these cultures that still have those relationships to the world. So, but maybe, maybe um, you know, let's come, you know, I know you, you, you do a lot of teaching around shadow work and you've already named that. So um, perhaps we could just build up a foundation and then talk about uh, the evolution of shadow resolution, which I think is fascinating. But could you just say, first of all, like what you mean by shadow is something we talk about a lot, but what do you mean by that? Okay, so if we take Jung's word for it, which is the person who ident- who named shadow, he's the one that coined the term, shadow is the unconscious mind. And the unconscious mind is all of what our mind is that is not conscious by definition, right? So that includes like heart rate, breathing rates, um, different, you know, digestion, um, hormone creation, all of that is really done in the unconscious mind. And so from the unconscious mind, we don't necessarily need to understand all of the unconscious mind. That would be completely dysfunctional. We want it running on its own homeostasis in a healthy way. The problem is, is that sometimes it isn't running healthy. And when it's not running in a healthy way, even whether it be uh, from psychological dynamics or, or biological dynamics. So um, what we want to be able to do is, is, have our unconscious mind running really well. That's my view. We want our unconscious mind running really well so that our conscious mind can focus on new, wonderful things that we want to learn and grow and enjoy and live. And, and so a lot of what I've done is I've studied how neuro, well, we should get back to the history. Okay. So young just renamed that shadow, which really made it popular. Um, and, and of course, both Jung and Freud were focused on a, a disease model, which was what's wrong with the unconscious, what's wrong, shadow is what's wrong in a sense, in many ways, although they, they did spend some on, on how to create it healthy too. That was the point was there was things that were wrong on how do you make it healthy. So they were, they were, they, they, I mean, they were giants in Western, you know, they would be not much in an old uh, 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 shamanic, you know, uh, they wouldn't have been considered much for shamans. Let's put it that way. But they were heroes, you know, in Western civilization in in the 1900s because they really did bring back 
the idea that, you know, the unconscious mind can have unhealthy elements to it. It drives us in ways that we don't even understand. And if we become more conscious of the unconscious aspect of our mind, we can actually begin to shape those unconscious patterns into better, healthier ones that really serve us and our communities better. Nice, nice. Yeah, I like I like that you bring in the the, the they focused on what's wrong um, because I think maybe that's part of what's changing now too. Is there's a a greater like um, move to non pathologize people. Um, so, but what I'm hearing is like that actually there's value in doing the type of work that would allow one to you know, to resolve some of these, these things that are in the shadow that perhaps are, you know, I'm saying this, I mean, if you agree, but they're showing up repetitively, repetitively in our lives, you know, certain issues that are coming up and up again, and that we can't quite um, work out, you know, with our conscious minds, we might not know, like, what the hell's going on, you know, we're perhaps just seeing the symptoms of that. Mm -hmm. Did I get that right? Absolutely. So, um, but yeah. So when we're working with our, when we're moving through our life, we might butt up against these repeating problems. It's like, why did this problem happen? Why did this problem? Oh, wow. This happened again to me. This happened again to me. And we keep looking to the external world for why that's happening. And we can get kind of magical thinking about it. It's like, oh, you know, these people are against me or God's against me or the world's against me, or that's just fate and different things like that. But really what's happening is we have a repeating pattern going in our mind and that repeating pattern in our unconscious mind keeps manifesting. And I don't mean on a magical level. I mean, we actually construct situations that make us go into situations that lead to these same problems over and over. So certain like arguments we might find ourselves in with mm -hmm. family members or colleagues or, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm just curious, you know, the, the shadow will be playing out then in things like addictions or, you know, what, what would it would it be useful to like before we talk about how we work with shadow to also maybe speak about what kind of things aren't shadow as well? You know, like is shadow appropriate for certain certain patterns and other things? We It might be the wrong tool for it as well. Absolutely. And my course, I actually go through this in detail about what is shadow and what is not shadow. Um, so, for example, if, if you take a look at, I kind of break it down into five conundrums of consciousness. One of them is shadow, but the other four are not. We have existential issues, which is when we just grow to new developmental perspectives. Uh, we have first person perspective, second person perspective, third person perspective, fourth person perspective, fifth person perspective, sixth person perspective. When we grow into a new perspective, we always run up against a conundrum, a consciousness conundrum. It's not necessarily shadow because it's not something that's that's hidden in our unconscious. It's something we've never come up against before. It's something new. Shadow, by definition, is something old. And new states of consciousness are something new that we haven't had before. So we're, we struggle with them as, as we move into these things because they're confusing for us. 
So for your audience, a first person perspective is something that we would expect from like a baby or a toddler. They're running around in first person perspective. They only see things from their own perspective. And anyone who's raised a little kid knows what that's like, because the little kid will, you know, they'll they'll want something and they'll grab it out of your hand without asking or being polite about it. And if 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 the other kid resists, they'll pull harder and then they'll start crying and screaming. They'll hit them over the head to get it. They'll you know, and they're not really being mean. We often sometimes think they're being mean. They're not amoral. They're pre-moral. They don't understand morals yet. Everything's from a first-person perspective, so they don't get it. But around age four, they get theory of mind. They finally realize, oh, wait a minute. I'm not the only mind in the universe. Other people have minds too. Mommy has a mind. Daddy has a mind. My friend has a mind. And this opens up a whole new world for them that they've never seen before, the world of friendship, the world of of community. And before that, it's always just been them blazing straight forward, trying to get what they want from their own personal perspective. But now in second person perspective, they can see what I can see what I want and I can see what you want. And that helps me to actually navigate the world better because now we're not fighting and killing each other to get a, a simple toy right? We're, we're working things out so that we can both have more fun. And actually by working together, not only do maybe, so there's several things that happen right here. The first person perspective will hit a kid over the head to get the toy and a second person's perspective, they might give up the toy to have the friend. They've never seen friendship before. And so now it's like, oh boy, I have a friend and the friend is more important than the toy. And not only is a friend more important, the way that we play has much more meaning to me now than it did before when in first person perspective. And to do that, I need to see from the other person's point of view as well. I need to see through their eyes, feel through their feelings. And that gets us theory of mind. It gets a second person perspective. And it's a whole world that we've never seen before. When we go into third person perspective, we can look at our relationships more objectively. So you might notice, I'm sure you've done this, I've done this, Joel, you know, we're getting in an argument with someone who's close to us and we're so wrapped up in the argument or the frustration or the conflict that we're, we're not stepping outside of the argument and going, oh, how would somebody, what, what if there was just an innocent bystander right now observing us? How would they view this experience? How would they view me? How would they view my partner, how would they view the entire conversation? What does the third person look at? And often we don't, you know, we know third person perspective because we can do it from, from places where we're not triggered, right? But when we get triggered, we often lose that third person perspective. We're just wrapped up in the reciprocity of the relationship, the, the frustrating part of it. Mm. And so what happens in third person perspective is we can, it, Ideally, during the fact, but at least after the fact, step back out and go, oh, wait a minute, maybe I wasn't behaving quite so nice during that exchange. Maybe I could have done that a little better and maybe they could have done this. And we can actually go into a problem solving mode about the relationship rather than just being wrapped up in it and continuing to foster the spin in our internal mind about what that relationship was doing. Nice. Yeah, I think we can all. Well, you know, I can certainly relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and then what, what about the fourth? Yeah, what comes online there? So what comes on at fourth person perspective then is we understand that who you are, Joel, and who I am, even in our relationship as we talk to each other, is colored by the culture 
that we are each from and by the subcultures from which we each came from, such as our families. And so the way that you perceive my words, I mean, I can't just put myself in your shoes and go, what would I feel while I'm listening to my words? I have to understand how Joel would feel based upon his raising about my words. And when you speak to me, you would be holding not only first, second, third, but the fourth person perspective that while you talk, Kim's interpreting those from his worldview, not from my worldview if I were in his shoes, which is what second person perspective is. How would I feel if I were in those shoes? Now it's how does Joel feel in his shoes based upon his culture and his raising respond based upon how I'm interacting. Hmm. That's super clear. I really appreciate this. Uh, um, yeah, actually, I think it's good if we complete the, the fifth and the sixth, because you know, at some point we could talk about the relationship between shadow and, and development, you know, and exactly. if the different types of shadow work needed, perhaps at different stages or not, you know, maybe there's just some universal approaches, but yeah, maybe we could just complete the fifth and the sixth and then, and then come back to the shadow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So starting out with fourth person perspective, this is where we actually get interested in shadow work. People before fourth person perspective often don't even get interested in shadow work because they're just, you know, running their lives. We're just running our lives. And when we get into fourth person perspective, we start going, oh, how I was raised shapes the way I view the world. The way they were raised shapes the way they were view the world. So I want to start really understanding how I was raised so that I can understand how I'm viewing the world because it's actually shaping it in a way that's not necessarily fully accurate. And it's actually what brings up shadow issues. It brings up the distortions of consciousness of, of my unconscious mind, which run my conscious behaviors, but I don't necessarily understand why they're happening. Examples are indecision. Oh, I really want to do this, but I want to do that. But I, like it ever have you ever been in a place of indecisiveness <laughs> never no no never no <laughs> me neither you know you and i are above that but you know for our audience no obviously we've all been in these places of almost sometimes torturous indecisiveness a little bit you know and that's uh that's just one form of shadow dynamic that's a symptom that lets us know oh we've got a shadow dynamic going on here mm -hmm. and that's something that we could work on so that we don't live in indecisiveness so much and that frees up so much space. If you think about how much time and energy is spent in indecisiveness, you could imagine what that'd be like if all that was freed up just for creative exploration or, or wonderful engagement and relationship, things like that. Mm -hmm. So that's one example. And so when we're in fourth person perspective, we start wanting to dig into all of these unconscious dynamics so that we can clean up um, our life. Fifth person perspective is extremely rare. Um, uh, and I'm going to do my best to explain it um, because words start breaking down when we hit into fifth person perspective, because in fifth person perspective, we understand how the words themselves shape our consciousness and how the words we use shape the way we think. And what we start doing is moving beyond the linguistic mind to the non-linguistic mind as a more primary way of understanding the world. Before that, we're still trying to use the linguistic mind to understand things. And, and anything that comes up for us, we try to put words to it to make an understanding out of it. 
In fifth person perspective, we realize we realize words can't do that. In fact, using words will by nature give us distortions. So presumably and, there, that's where somebody might have a lot of freedom around or, or their power, the potency of their shadow work might increase dramatically because, you know, suddenly they've, they've kind of like um, separated out from the, the linguistic mind and they can see how they're, they're, the very way that they think and language the world is actually, you know, creating a confining sense or, or, or reinforcing the shadow itself. You know, they might need, still need to do some of that primary recovery work but that the secondary you know imprisoning experience that language might create is freed up more yeah exactly joel that's right on good target good job yeah most people don't ca capture that so clearly and you did right there that was great so yeah so shadow work actually from fourth person perspective on becomes increasingly important because what we're realizing is how much we live in distortions. It's interesting, you know, sometimes when I meet people that are just getting into shadow work, they'll say, oh, I saw my shadow. And that's like, great, I'm celebrating with you. But that was one. <laughs> there are many. And the further we go, the further we dig, the more we realize how much shadow actually drives our lives in ways that we had no clue about. And fifth person perspective just brings that to a, a whole nother level, how the linguistic mind itself becomes a prison to what our whole mind is actually capable of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So many questions about this, um, but let me, let me, let's complete the, let's get that sense of completion. I don't know about the sixth person perspective. It probably is even more difficult to, to put into words, but I'll yeah, it's even more difficult. on the spot. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll play with it because obviously after fifth person perspective, language breaks down and it, and it starts not making as much sense as a way of understanding uh, consciousness. But what we are is we're in awareness and awareness is observing awareness itself, uh, free of the linguistic mind. Now in sixth person perspective, um, similar to second person perspective and fourth person perspective, you know, we're, we're getting out of our own individual orientation and we're doing it in a collective way. So remember when we said first person perspective to second person perspective, I want to treat you nice so we can be a friend. And in fourth person perspective, it was like, oh, I need to see things not just from how I would view them from Joel's perspective, but how I would view them if I were raised as Joel from his perspective, right? Now in six person perspective, we look at the mind that is beyond the linguistic mind, the whole, the whole mind. And then we're able to do that on a collective level with other people, other aspects of consciousnesses that exist. And, and that becomes a rich, that becomes the new collective, the new, for lack of a better word, friend world um, becomes that dynamic that that's what we uh, look for in our, in our relationship dynamics. And those are, that may be a kind of a, what's another way to do this. Okay. So things like um, unconscious and conscious start coming together because the, if you're beyond the linguistic mind, right, you're starting to live in more of, 
what would normally have been the unconscious world in a much more conscious way. And uh, emptiness and fullness start coming together. Uh, you have a lot of people trying to meditate on emptiness and other people living in fullness. What's the richness and the meaning of life, right? Those two come together into one whole consciousness where emptiness is fullness, fullness is emptiness, that this whole consciousness is coming together into one one whole system that's not um, segmenting out other dynamics from it. What comes up for me and, and you know, before we kind of like, I don't know how to put it, like bring it back down to, not down to earth, but you know, um, it's like, um, it kind of reminds me a bit when you talk about shamanism again, this sense I get of, of um, you know, increasingly like the work becomes kind of energetic, you know? Um, yeah. And I don't mean that in a, new agey way but you know like through felt sense through sensation but um more than that this is you know this visceral sense of like um unfoldingness that mm -hmm. that can take place as one begins to you know move out of that linguistic mind and to begin to kind of metabolize um experience you know and and and, and again this is just my thoughts but you know imagine in, in, as people move into that six person perspective maybe certain capacities come online for them to be able to do collective healing work, you know, on a, on a, a fundamental level, um, you know, to be kind of extraordinary healers in some sense, you know, um, I don't know what you think about that. I'm just formulating the thoughts as you, as you share it, but yeah. I think that, I think that one of the, one of the things that the shaman said is they, they journey underneath the cultural blanket is what they called it. And, and, and really, that's where we're looking at fourth, fifth, and sixth person perspective is how do we journey underneath the cultural blanket to enact healing? And, and I, I like that way of looking at it. Mm. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, maybe we could then, um, this might become part of our conversation, but I'd love to talk about, you know, the, the types of shadow forms that you, I've heard you mention um, that I think I appreciate and also, you know, the, the, how do you actually work with shadow, you know? So, um, but would it be useful here to, to kind of like name, I think you talked about introjections, projections and um, um, split states or split ego states. And yeah. I find that a really useful set of distinctions of how people can experience shadow. And why, why is it important for you to differentiate those um, forms of shadow? Yeah, that's and you could tell us what they are as well. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's a great question, Joel. So, yeah, the problem with treating shadow as a one, you know, everything's just treated the same way is you actually can cause a great deal of harm for people. And I've watched this happen. I mean, I train psychotherapists and coaches in trying to create more clean interview styles so that we're not injecting our shadow into our interviews with our clients. And every person, it doesn't matter if they're PhD psychologists or if they're uh, spiritual teachers or if they are coaches, every single person that's gone through our courses has, we just have a plethora of projections upon the client. And, um, and if you're projecting upon the client, now what you're actually doing is you're treating your own projections, not the client. And we think we're healing the client. So this is a really important thing. I'm going to go into what each of those yeah. are. Yeah, and just to to say, like, um, what do you mean by that? Because I think this is this is a big idea. Yeah, like, do you mean that they they 
because on the one sense you could mean like their unresolved shadow work is being projected onto the client but it could it also mean like they're projecting a kind of unconscious uh, paradigm of change onto their clients like as in this is the way that change mm-hmm. happens it happened for me and therefore for you yeah exactly which might be slightly less unconscious but still implicitly working yeah yeah, exactly. So if you go back to remember what I said about second person perspective, if I go, I want to treat you the way that I want to be treated versus I want to treat you the way in fourth person perspective, I want to treat you the way that you would want to be treated based upon the way you were raised. Yes. So see, in second person perspective, I'm projecting upon you that you are like me and you are like me, but you're not exactly like me. Right. And there's this, right. So a lot of psychotherapy and coaching and spiritual mentor work is based upon a template model that says you are like me. And so this worked for me. So I'm going to give it to you because it'll work for you when actually you come from a whole different set of perceptive your, your senses have actually been shaped different than mine as you've grown through life. Your, your entire sensory and symbolic universe that you live in has differences from mine. Even though we have enough similarities that we can communicate, there's differences. So if I project onto you that you're like me and I'm going to give you this template to go from, I'm actually projecting upon you how I would respond if I were given that template, not how you would respond given that template. Hmm. Yeah. I feel like... I feel like um, it's it's like the coaches and therapists are aware of that, but I think I think you're pointing to it on a really refined level. You know, like mm-hmm. yeah, you know, not just having that as um, um, you know an idea that one lives into, but how can you actually how can you actually be attuned to your clients in a way that you can you know have a requisite response to them. Right. So, so I don't know if this, yeah. Should we talk about the three um, forms here? Yes. So we have as interjections, split ego states and projections. Interjections often come in like when we're in early childhood, babies and, and toddlers, because we don't have filters for being able to rationally assess whether something's accurate or not. So if a parent tends to uh, ignore us every time we, you know, get, get um, dynamic in our lives, we might over time start feeling like, oh, being dynamic is not a good thing. Or if we're actually slapped or hit or, or put down or told to be in our place, that's even more severe. But even just simple, how much our parent notices certain aspects of our own life shapes the way we view what's meaningful and not meaningful. We absorb those interjects and their distortions of of the overall reality, even though they're accurate, maybe in that specific context, in that specific time. But children aren't able to, you know, rationalize all of that. Oh yeah, you know, in in my mom is like that, but not all people are like me. They're not thinking like that. They're just absorbing what functions in this environment. And then that becomes encoded in our mind and it gets put into the unconscious. Um, so a way to look at this is um, anybody who's driven. I'm sure, do you drive? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Have you ever yeah. uh, gotten in the car and driven and then ended up at the place where you're going to and don't even remember your whole drive? 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's happened for a lot of people. You're driving along and all of a sudden you end up somewhere and you're like, oh, I don't even remember driving because we're so in our mind exploring other things that we forgot. The, but our body did all the driving just fine the whole way. And so this is what happens. This is the beautiful aspect of the mind, but it's also where it catches us with shadow. So what happens is our prefrontal cortex starts learning new things and then as it learns it and gets it down, that gets, gets moved to the unconscious mind for automatic operation, what we call homeostasis. So it gets put into homeostasis. It's on automatic now. And so now our prefrontal cortex is cleared up to go do something else new. And then as that becomes learned and good, then that becomes homeostatic, you know, just being nice, greeting people, being kind, these things are almost automatic, you know, to most of us at this point. So, so now we have all these patterns that are unconscious in our mind as we're learning new things, but some of those patterns were based upon distortions and those distortions are what I call interjects. We interjected a distorted aspect of the world rather than a whole healthy aspect of the world. And now it's running automatically in our unconscious mind. Those distortions can come from as broad of a field as our culture that we're raised in to the specific interactions with our parents. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, I live in the Netherlands, but I'm, I was raised in Britain. So yeah, you know, that cliche um, of the British people being nice, being polite, you know, and then you come to the Netherlands where Dutch people are very direct and, mm -hmm. you know, that can be quite jarring in the beginning because you're like, whoa, the, you know, but that's just part of their culture. So, yeah, you know, yeah, it's all this patterning and conditioning that that's laid down. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. just runs on homeostasis. Now you can imagine those are both unconscious or what we would say in shadow, but not necessarily distorted shadow, but they are in a sense, they're, they're a way of viewing the world. So now the polite that's you know be polite but don't be genuine so to speak right mm. you know and be direct you know as opposed to evasive right and so the the netherlander could go well they're just being evasive they're just avoiding you know and the other one is just god they're so rude they're so mean you know and right. now that now we get this argument going between who's mean and who's being evasive and and mm. these dynamics happen in in couples all the time you know and our relationships is that's that uh, neither one realizing their history would view the other person through that history as if they were being rude or they were being evasive. And so this happens in our everyday lives as we are interacting with other people who were raised in their microcultures in different ways. We get hooked by different little things and we can feel it because it feels uncomfortable. That's one of the beautiful things about our senses. Now, the question is, what do we do? Do we become curious about that or do we become reactive to it? You know, do we push it away? Do we attack? What do we do? Or do we try to understand it on a deeper level? And I know that that's where our culture is headed now. It's, it's beautiful to see that. A lot of people aren't there yet, obviously, but probably most of the coaches that listen to this and psychotherapists are at the place where now we're starting to create this automatic response of, I want to be a little more curious about that. But still, as trained as we are with our clients and stuff, sometimes in our everyday lives, we still get hooked by that. And yeah, 
right? And so uh, this is the challenge for us is to be able to do it for our clients, but also do it for ourselves. Because if we can do it for ourselves, we're actually going to be cleaner for our clients too. Mm -hmm. Right. And maybe you could talk, I'd love to talk to you about what kinds of work might be appropriate at each one. Do you think it's better if we just talk about what projections and split ego states are first and then, and then um, contrast the, the types of work needed? Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's, um, let's go through each of them first and then we'll talk about the types of work because that, it really explains clearly why we need to work differently. So, a split ego state is where we divide ourselves into two parts. This is where we are indecisive or we find an argument or anybody notice, you know, multiple voices in the head. Those are all split ego states. And so these multiple voices can sometimes be a confusing cacophony of different directions and misdirections. Oh, move in this direction. No, move in that direction. Do this, do that. You should, you shouldn't. All of those kinds of things. All of these um, split ego states that are just arguing inside of our head. Uh, this is where our consciousness was divided and, and split off. So an example of that might be if we're a little kid and we're... Um, Let's say we get on the on the coffee table and we're dancing and just singing and just trying to have fun. And, you know, our parent yells at us, get off that coffee table. That's not the way to behave. And we, oh, you know, we get this little shock inside our system. And and all of, and and instead of realizing that we shouldn't be dancing on the coffee table, we take it that we shouldn't be dancing and celebrating. Yeah, especially if it happens over and over. And so what happens is now we have a constriction on our ability to celebrate. And, and so what happens is anytime that part of us that comes up that wants to celebrate, we shove it back down. We say, oh, don't do that because we'll get in trouble. So now we have this split ego state. We have the part that wants to celebrate and the part that wants to protect us from getting hurt. Both of them are good parts, but they aren't communicating with each other other than through this kind of shadowy um, dynamic that yet as soon as celebration comes up, it gets pushed down. Celebration comes up, gets pushed down. And now if I'm pushing down my own celebration, what happens when I'm in interaction with another person and they're not celebrating in their life, I don't even notice if that's an issue. Mm -hmm. As a coach, as a yeah. psychotherapist, it's like, oh no, that's just normal. So I don't even identify it as an issue that could make their life better. Yeah. Another, so this, another, uh, well, I'll just say, sorry, another great reason why doing as a coach or a therapist, you need to do this work to reclaim, reclaim these kind of lost parts or, um, you know, like do to, to heal this, integrate these parts so that 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 kind of attunement and expression can come online and you can you can see it in your clients if it's not there for, or, or rejoice in it when it is there. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then so. But, um Actions, then, you know, I think it's a, it's a word I'm familiar with, but I'm just curious. Um, you could name what that is. Before we go into how to handle them, let's go into projections because each one of them needs to be handled very differently. Is because is that what you were asking? Shall we go into what to do about split yeah. ego states? Okay, let's go into projections. No, um, yeah, do pro yes, do projections, and then I'd love to, yeah, then talk about what's the different kind of approach we might take with each one. Yeah. Right. So projections now are once we have an interject or a split ego state, we tend to project that out into the world. 
And most of the time we just think we're in conversation, but actually so much of our life is actually in conversation, putting out projections onto the world of our interjects and our split ego states, our ideologies, our shoulds, our shouldn'ts, all of those shoulds and shouldn'ts are all interjects, every one of them. And so whenever we think somebody should be this way or they shouldn't be that way, we're, you know, we're projecting onto the world. That would be just one simple example. So what we do is we take our distorted interjects and our distorted uh, split ego states and we start putting them out onto the world. And this is where you see all these incredible clashes with, with culture and nations and race, racism, sexism, classism, um, you know, all the biases and the prejudices, all the, all the scapegoating, all the, uh, even like um, identity politics, all of that is all projection that's just being spewed upon the world, creating all of these disasters and horrible experiences that people go through. Uh, the war in the Ukraine right now is a classic example. Any war is an example of somebody projecting on somebody else and then trying to make it happen. And, and uh, in all of our fights, whenever we feel anger or, or rage or irritability or frustration, you know, those are all examples of, of when we're projecting um, something of some kind onto the world because the world's not responding in the way that we expect it to respond. So this is another way to look at it. Anytime the world does not respond the way you think it should respond or the way you expect it to respond, that's because we have been projecting onto the world what we think the world is, but it's not what the world is. If we are actually receiving and attending to the world, we'd realize that everything that's happening, that's the world, right? And we wouldn't be projecting on it and then trying to make it something that it's not. We can still try to shape the world into something that we want to be better, but we wouldn't be angry or upset or irritated or annoyed or frustrated by it because we would be in a complete acceptance of what is and realize that we're wanting to shape it in a different way. And anger and irritability, frustration, rage, and war generally don't lead to positive results. Mm. Um, if you think about it, every time you uh, get angry or irritable at another person, does that tend to make them be uh, the better human being that you want them to be? I tried that with my stepson and uh, yeah, I can, I can safely say it's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, as all parents know, it's, it's incredibly ineffective. It's incredibly <laughs> ineffective. And yet we have, right. And yet we have identity politics running around saying, you guys are stupid. If I just tell them they're stupid enough, do you think they're going to start wanting to come to my side? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not going to yeah. work. It's ineffective. Yeah. So when we use ineffective strategies, even for very positive outcome goals that we have, then it's a lot of times it's because of our projections. Um, just before you continue, um, so what I, what I appreciate about what you're sharing is that you, I start to get a sort of these distinctions, yeah, so that I can kind of almost like map or sense where am I in these three forms, you know, and that they could actually co-arise or be feeding one another. But, you know, I can start to kind of like um, become bigger than them because I can start to see them you know, operating in the moment and then, you know, make the right move perhaps in that moment to what I might need to do, you know, like if it's an introjection, then, you know, it sounds like it's an kind of like a um, very different move from a projection. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then just to um, speak of like, just this sense of like 
so much of what we're doing is is kind of like projecting onto the world in a sense. Like as I hear you speak, you know, I get a sense of, and so I imagine like there's um, a, a real freedom that can come, you know, as one does more and more shadow work. And I have a question about, you know, where can it become like a project, you know, like almost like, you know, um, never ending, you know, this sense of, cause I know, I know in my own life, it's like at one point it was like, I became like a project. I got excited in personal development and, and it was like, I've got to work on myself and, you know, like it's kind of, but there's something inside of that notion itself, which actually, which actually like is binding, you know, and, and becomes like limiting at some point. And so, um, but nevertheless, like, as I hear you speak, it's like, I can imagine if, if we were, this is deep spiritual work in a sense. That's what I want to say. It's like, I'm like refining my spaciousness and my, my freedom of perception so that, you know, I'm less and less getting hooked by these projections and, um, you know, split states. And, and there's just like a boundless energy that might come online as, as, uh, as I'm like, you know, becoming more whole or something, but you know, even that you have to be careful. I'm becoming whole because I like to perhaps hold that I'm already whole as well, you know? So anyway, that's just a reflection. I don't know if you want to reflect on that or if I'm, you know, if uh, we go back in now into like, what might one do? I'm super curious. I'm sure people are like, what do we do with um, what move might we make with these different forms? Yeah. So let's start with something that you brought up, which is a very, very acute perception. And that is that when we get into this work, we can almost turn ourselves into a project. And if we're doing that out of passion, that's wonderful. But notice what happens is we have content shadow and we have process shadow. These are two other divisions. So the content shadow is, you know, uh, something like, uh, uh, I'm not good at math, you know, because I was told I'm not good at math, right? Uh, and or or as as females go through uh, society, they're told that they're not good at math, and so once they start absorbing those cultural projections, they start actually deperforming in math compared to what they were doing earlier in life. It's interesting how in men the same way, you know, where we're, you know, we could be somewhat self-reflective, but then we're told to be confident. And so we run around being confident and as a result, less self-reflective. And so, so what I want to talk about is the difference between content shadow and process shadow. So we have the content of the shadow, but then we have these process shadows, like there's something fundamentally wrong with me. And now no matter what content comes in, it's interpreted as there's something fundamentally wrong with me. And therefore, when shadow work comes in or a psychotherapist comes in or a coach comes in or a spiritual mentor comes in to help, the interpretation is there's something fundamentally wrong with me. And I need those people so because there's, they need to fix something fundamentally wrong with me. And now everything that's being interpreted is being interpret everything that's coming in is being interpreted through the process shadow of there's something fundamentally wrong with me. So we can have all the best intentioned, you know, psychotherapists, coaches, spiritual leaders trying to help people. But if we don't catch that process shadow that the person is going, Oh, there's something fundamentally wrong with me. Everything we're teaching them is actually proving to them. There's something fundamentally wrong with them. Mm -hmm. It's like, Oh God, I didn't know that there's something fundamentally wrong with me. 
and the coach and the psychotherapist and the spiritual mentor going, Hey, look, just think of it this way, or look at it this way, or here's an experience for you. And they go, Oh gosh, you know, there's something family wrong. How do they know all this? And I don't. And, and actually all of our wonderful healing is actually reinforcing the process shadow that's going on. And so that's another thing for us to just be aware of, you know, uh, in, in, in the work that we do. So back to the interjects, projections of split ego states. So interjections are distorted material coming into us from the outside world. So what we need from that is release techniques. And there's a lot of different release techniques in the world that people learn and they learn to do release and that's good. So we want to release the things that we brought in that were distorted. The thing is, a lot of times what we do with our release techniques is we're releasing all of it instead of keeping the part of ourselves that's genuinely true and releasing just the distortion. And so sometimes the release techniques are not refined. We don't refine them down enough to go, wait a minute, let's just release the distortion. Let's not release all of it, right? Right. And that just might be like, there's something that I genuinely need or want, Exactly. I've just um, I've just released it all because I thought oh I'm just uh, I'm just projecting on this person and you know um, sorry um, I'm just um, you know it's just all my own baggage introjection or something like that. Right. But actually, I, I absorbed yeah. all of this stuff and now I reject yeah. it all when actually some of it was genuinely me. We see this a lot actually for people in third person perspective, just entering third person perspective. So in third person perspective, we are uh, stepping out of our, the, the um, it's like, you know, when you're getting into college, right? You're stepping out of your family structure and you're starting to see, hey, there's a bigger world out there. And so some people are stepping out of their religious structure and they're going, oh, there's a bigger world out there. And then they actually reject the entire religious structure and then they adopt another one. And then they actually just do the same thing with the new one. Instead of being fundamentalist Christian, they become a fundamentalist Buddhist, or they become a fundamentalist something else. Uh, and, and so they're, they're actually repeating the fundamentalism, but they think that they've, they've uh, gotten rid of the interject, even though they're not thinking of it that way. They're rejecting this. But actually what's happening is some of that religious dynamic, there might be some aspects of that that are really valuable, that are treasures to hold, that are actually aligned with your genuine self, while others really do need to be discarded. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Right? And so instead of doing that refined work of going, oh, wait a minute, I want to keep the golden rule, but I want to reject the judgmentalism, for example. Right? Yeah. You know, because the golden rule really does resonate for me, but the judgmental God doesn't. So I'm going to let go of that. Um and so what happens when we just discard it whole, we lose a lot of our genuine self to try to be our unique self because mm -hmm. we're trying to be unique from our history. And so right. we, we actually discard part of our genuine stuff for the, for the sake of being unique. And so that's the refinement that needs to happen on in any interject dynamic. We are refining. We want to refine out what is genuine self versus what is interject. Because how do you how do you do that? Yeah, how do you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot there's you know I wish I could answer it in a in a five you know five minute blurb or something, but it it is just it's deeper inquiry. So the point is, if you take a look at okay, this is another thing I go through in my workshops and in much more detail than I can here. But if you take a look at um, the avoidance cycle, which is actually the the distorted shadow cycle. 
what we do is we have an event in the world and then we, we drop down below our comfort zone and we feel uncomfortable. And what most people do when we feel uncomfortable is we try to get comfortable. And what you have to do actually to sort out the shadow work is you have to go deeper into the discomfort, you know, and, and, in, and when you sit with the discomfort long enough, then you can start teasing out the, the stuff that, that is genuine versus the stuff that's not genuine. And it just takes some time to actually sit there with the discomfort and tease it apart until you have your jewels and your gems separated out from the garbage. And then you release the garbage and you keep your jewels and gems. And I think to me, you're speaking maybe to like a principle that m maybe applies to all three forms when working with them. But, um, you know, the the ability for us to stay with the level of sensation or felt experience, that level of discomfort in a way that we um, we're not trying to um, have a change agenda and, and make it go away. So we feel better. But, you know, we're actually allowed to kind of we can include it in a sense, in a way that it, that it, you know, begins to transmute in some way or to metabolize and, 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 and break up. And then, yeah, there's a kind of maybe realization that can occur from that process. Yeah. Deeper and deeper insight, you know, as we move into that, we get deeper and deeper insight. And one of those insights is how to tease apart the jewels from the garbage. Mm. Nice. And so I think releasing release work would be, you know, a lot of psychotherapies really oriented towards perhaps releasing, yeah, like noticing schemas and, you know, deep beliefs mm -hmm. we might have inherited and how can we begin mm -hmm. to feel compassionate and, and release those. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah exactly. Yeah. And, and so what about projections and, and uh, uh, split ego states? Like, um, sounds like we need to take a different different no, approach with them. Absolutely. Because with the split ego states, we have two genuine parts of ourselves that are not in communication or they're arguing with each other. And now imagine, and what we need to do with them is we need to integrate them. We need to bring them together so that they're communicating in harmony. So imagine what happens if I do a release technique with a split ego state, what I'm doing is I'm rejecting a part of myself. And this is what happens when people just do nothing but release techniques. They're actually harming people because they're, they're doing release techniques with projections and split ego states too, which is absolutely what you don't want to do. It's actually will cause harm. We don't want to reject that. That actually reinforces the split ego state when we use a release technique, because what we're doing is we're saying this ego state doesn't feel good. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to release it. It's all my parents' fault, or it's all, you know, the nation's fault, or it's all capitalism's fault, or it's all the white males or the black females or the whoever, you know, whoever you blame, right? It's whoever you blame, you know, and so I'm going to give it back to them. It's all the Democrats or it's all the Republicans, you know, whoever we blame. And so we release it, you know, and then what we do is all, you can't release a genuine part of yourself. So what we're actually doing is just burying it deeper. Mm-hmm. And now we, we actually have deepened our shadow rather than healed it. And we get temporary benefit. We go, oh, that feels so good to have released it. But all we've done is actually hidden it away deeper. And we've actually deepened our shadow work. So, so would something like internal family systems 
work and this split ego state, you know, like if there's different parts of us that are polarized and, you know, um, bouncing off each other, um, that we can actually, you know, be present with those parts so they feel seen and they begin to, you know, you know, release their burdens they're carrying. Is that is that like a an approach that? And I'm just curious, like, would IFS work across all of these three, or would it be appropriate in certain places more? You know, like yeah, are the so cross paradigmatic right, right. practices you find that work in in different forms? Yeah, very yeah. few, very few practices work off all three of them. I think that some, and I think that we're starting to approach that with some of them, like I think I internal family systems or my internal systems, because I, I I like internal family systems. I think that that the the founder himself was brilliant. I think that the way that a lot of people learn it, they learn it a little too strongly with the templates. And I've I've had a lot of people come to me that have had. I have internal family systems work and I have to now dissolve the templates because they're just new interjects, you know? What do you mean by the templates? Like protectors or or these different titles that people give these internal parts, right? They're templating these ideas onto people and that's an interject. And now what I have to do is release the interjects that they have templated in while they were doing all their work. And, and so I think the founder probably, the little bit that I've studied on it, uh, I think the founder kind of gets this, but I don't get that most of the people who are listening to him are quite capturing what he's trying to say. Um, yeah, and that, that's fascinating to me. How, how would you help then help someone release those templates? Is it, you know, is it just as much as saying like, hey, you know, as I hear you speaking, I, I notice you're, you're talking about you've got this protector part and this exile part and you know, um, it sounds like, um, well, you might, I don't know how you would actually phrase it in a compassionate way, but you might have internalized that in some way. And I wonder if that's perhaps not serving you. Yeah. Where did you get this idea of a protector? Mm. Oh, I, I was, I was in a, I, I went to psychotherapy and somebody did internal climate systems. Okay. Well, I wonder what would happen if we just let them have the protector for a minute. And we just talked about who you are genuinely first. We can just let that go for a while. You can always take it back if you want, right? But mm-hmm. tell me about this part that you labeled as a protector. What, what is it that they are like? Describe them to me from your own internal perspective. And as soon as they start using template words, it's like, hold on, hold on. That sounds like a template. Let's give that back. I want to hear about that part of you, that ego state. I want to hear from it directly. What does it want? What's its passion? What is it like? What is it not like? And we get a more genuine, direct conversation going with each ego state without some name or title or role that it's playing. This is really beautiful because I, I feel like then what you're pointing at is you're, you're like in a, in a genuine, direct perception with that ego state. Exactly. You know, yeah. whilst at some point it might have been useful to kind of say protector and exile, it kind of gave you something because it, it brought something into view then what you've started to do is you're relating to that ego state through that name mm-hmm. and now it's defined it in a limiting way. And so, and so what you are saying is this is now brought out, there's a fresh aliveness that, you right. know, the radical aliveness of this ego state with no kind of mm-hmm. filters. So it can really purely express itself. I, I find that because I, I, I use internal family systems in my coaching and there's certain things I love about it. There's certain things I find are limiting about it. And I think you're speaking into something for me now that that's really 
lighting me up and very potent. So yeah. thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So now that you see that and I see you lighting up around it, this is great. This is exciting that you got that because a lot of people don't get that. Now, if you look at that, it's like, why go through the template in the first place? Why go through the distortion to get to an undistortion? What if you just initiated your conversation with your client from a direct, genuine, I want to understand this part of you. Tell me about this part and have them describe it. And, and you don't put the template on it because if you put the template on it, it's going to question. It's going to shape the way you question. It's going to shape yeah. the way you inquire. This is how right. tricky projection can be. So we need to rid ourselves of the templates as well so that we can just have a genuine conversation with this ego state that's inside this other person. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. I really appreciate that. And let me, let me then, you know, this is really like uh, why I love doing this podcast because I get to ask the questions I want to ask, yeah. <laughs> you know, then um, what about the, you know, in, internal family systems? I don't want to make this all about that. So we'll shift in a moment, but um, you know, this notion of like unblending from a part and being with a part from kind of what they call self or called presence. And that can, um, be a kind of like, you know, compassionate, um, um, kind of, it can be compassionate and see that part, mm-hmm. uh, without a lot of the filters that other parts often have, like, you know, what, what do you think about that move in, in a way? Um, yeah, no, that's exactly what I, what I do in my systems work is, is we have direct communication without templates to each ego state. And when another ego state of the person comes in judging it, it's like, hold on, we'll get to you. Let's just have, right. we're just going to have this direct communication now, and then we'll talk to you. And so I note in my head, okay, here's the one that was judging this one saying this one's bad or whatever it was doing. Right. Yeah. I just note that in my head that there's another ego state to get to know. And then as I get to know this one, it gets, it feels loved and safe and care. Just like we talk about a regular person, love, safe and care. Right. And if we put templates on a human being that comes in front of us, oh, they're a, they're a, a white male. So they think this way, or they're a black female. So they think this way, if we were to treat our clients like that, see how damaging that would be. Oh Yeah. 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 And yet, for some reason, we think that if it's an ego state, we can put a template on it. Oh, they're a protector. Oh, they're an exile. Or they're a, well, that's not who they are. They're a full, rich being in and of themselves. And we want to treat them as a full, rich being free of stereotypes and projections. Hmm. Hmm. Just because I know we're talking about shadow work. And what I found with, with doing parts work is that and this is perhaps like less spoken about in the, the internal family systems. I might be wrong about this. I don't know everything about it, but mm-hmm. when these parts are seen in this way that they feel, you know, fully seen and appreciated, they often kind of transform into kind of qualities of presence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, like, um, um, you know, like qualities of strength or love or, or brilliance mm-hmm. uh, of like a kind of gnosis and knowing, you know, and they, they might even take on like a form of like, um, you know, a, a kind of, if, if it was, if it started out as a kind of like um, lifeless childlike figure, it transforms into, I've had this myself personally, it comes like a, almost like a, a superhero manga mm-hmm. ca- cartoon. And, but it has this archetypal, presence like energy inside of it that's liberated that that becomes part of then one's unfolding process and so you know perhaps that speaks to like what's on the other side of shadow work you know as we liberate the gold inside of shadow 
Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's what I'm talking about. The gems from the garbage, you know, it's when we actually are very present and, and allow that deeper work to drop down deeper and deeper and deeper until we get to the gems. And then the gems get released, the jewels, the light, the shine, whatever you want to call it, the inner light shines through this particular ego state in this way. And then through you as an overall human being, as a result, and that's, what's beautiful. And now you got that one. And now we want to remember the one that was judging it. So we want to bring it in and also not treat it like some bad character because it was judging it. I want to get to know that one too, not as a template, but as it's genuine being too, because it's got a golden light underneath it too, somewhere, no matter how nasty or judgmental it was. And so there's, so I have techniques for how to drop in deeper and deeper into that too. So you get to the, um, to the inner light there. And then when they both have their inner lights, now they can start interacting with each other from their inner light rather than from their distorted templates or their distortions. Yeah. Lovely. Lovely. If I, if Um, I have a protector, if I have a protector interacting with an exile, that by definition is going to lead to a certain interaction. Hmm. But if I get to the golden light of what we call the protector and the golden light of what we call the exile, and we eliminate all the templates and we just get the golden light, that's going to create a completely different relationship. Yeah. 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 Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Um, it gives me confidence then in, in, in the work. I love this idea of, of like dropping the templates. And I've seen that with clients countless mm-hmm. times where, where it does, it just the the labels just are no longer appropriate. There is a transformation taking place. There is a transformation. And I know we 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 haven't. Um, I'm just seeing the time, and we haven't named the projection uh, move that we might make. I want to make sure listeners kind of get that sense. And I know we haven't really talked about the five steps as well. And okay. maybe we have to do that in part two. But we could name them, and you okay. know, I'd love to just get a, have a little bit of time for so overall reflections. Yeah, yeah good. So projections are when we take either the distorted uh, material from our interjects or the distorted material from our split ego states, and we put them out onto the world. And so if, if we have, um, uh, let's like uh, the celebration driver I talked about before, which is on the active driver of first person perspective, the, the toddler that's running around, you have autonomy, initiative, follow through completion and celebration. And you go through that and that makes your active driver full and complete. Now I can get a shadow pattern on autonomy. I don't have the right to my own passion, basically initiative. I don't have the right to start on my own passion, follow through. As soon as there's some resistance, I give up my passion completion. Now that I'm almost completing my passion, do I allow myself to bring it into fruition or do I back off at the end? Cause I don't want to put it out in the world because I might get judged or whatever the shadow is. Right. And then once I do it, can I celebrate or do I just go back through and, and work on another project and then work on another project and work on another project. Kind of like you were kind of saying with shadow work, I've become a project, but I never get to celebrate the glory of it. I just keep working and working and working because I have this belief that there's something wrong about me. So I can't celebrate. 
So I just work, get to completion. Then I start another project. You might notice clients like that in your life, right? Where <laughs> I'm just thinking of myself. Great, up there. <laughs> yeah, you get to this great place where it's like, this is a time to celebrate. It's like, okay, what about the next one? What about the next one? What about the next one? Right? And we never get to take time to celebrate. So, you know, we have, we can have shadow patterns on any one of those dynamics. And so what we want to do is to be able to, um, have the, have those all be full and robust. But what happens if we have a shadow pattern on one, we will tend to then maybe ignore it and uh, not even see it in our clients. So we won't bring it up. That's one thing that I said before. So that's an example of projection by omission and then projection by assertion would be something where, you know, I, I really believe that people need to go deeper to solve their problems. So I'm going to push this person to go deeper, push them to go deeper, push them to go deeper, but they might be in a place where they just want a good old coaching solution. How do I learn to do this better? And I'm ready to go on, but we Mm -hmm. think, oh, you need to go deeper all the time because we need to go deeper. Right. Right. And so now we're projecting on them that they're at the same developmental level that we're at, wanting the same developmental things and needing the same developmental meaning when they don't. And so we just project on them. And this was a tough one that I learned because coming out of psychotherapy is all about going deeper, deeper, deeper. And then I worked with people in real life. And it's like most people don't want that. They don't really get that much benefit from it. They just want a skill that's going to make their life better. And so I started just looking at people from their own perspective and their own worldview and their own developmental level and honoring that instead of thinking that they need to be at this place. And then it's like, oh, this person just needs a skill. Oh, this person just wants that. Now this person wants to go deeper. And if I gave them skill after skill after skill and then it worked, eventually they did start wanting to go deeper. Mm, Nice. So this is an example of how we project as coaches or psychotherapists or our spiritual leaders onto people sometimes that isn't necessarily helpful. Hmm. But and projections are anything and anything, any sexism, racism, classism, all the isms, you know, those are all projections, anger, hate, violence, all of that tends to be, you know, a projection or an example of a projection. I'm trying to do something projecting my experience out onto the world, trying to make it be a certain way. And I like, a couple and then what of, like, we need to do, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's like a reowning. Yeah. Like uh, yeah. I need to take back that projection. Perfect. Yeah. Like, you got like it. Uh, yeah. yeah. So now this is where our owning techniques are. Now imagine that if we reown our projection, it's like, Oh, you're bad. No, I'm, I'm bad. What was I doing bad? Oh, well, for one, I was projecting on you for two, I was projecting this particular thing on you. And where did I get this particular distortion, this particular distortion I got from an interject. So now I need to release that distortion, but I can only do that when I own my projection. So it starts getting complex here, especially with projections, because I can project an, uh, a split ego state or an interject. Yeah. So once I own a projection, I need to go, is this two genuine parts of myself that I, that I'm actually just projecting out onto the world. I'm the good split ego state and they're the bad split ego state. And I just haven't owned my other, I haven't seen the beauty in that other ego state yet. Or is it an actual interject that I got from my parents? So I own it back and it was an interject. I just put it out because I couldn't hold the pain of the interject from my parent. So I just put it out on a whole class of people or another group of people or another single person. 
So now I own it. And now I have to do the work of going, was it an interject or a split ego state? Get that correct. And then I either do the release or the integration work from there. Now imagine what happens if I do an owning technique with an interject, what's going to happen? Yeah. Um, well, I'm basically doubling down on uh, the, the interjection, the interjection, basically like exactly. reinforcing it. Yeah reinforcing it. So I'm actually making it worse. What happens if I use a release technique with a projection? Well, yeah, same again, in the sense of you're, you're like reinforcing the projection. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. So that's, yeah. So you can see that if you don't get this diagnosis, right, you can do the best shadow work in the world and cause unbelievable harm. Really uh, beautiful. Um, like I'm aware of the time, there's so much I wanted to ask you still about the um, the, the five steps of um, evolution of shadow resolution, but um, I think we're going to need to do that in a part two, which we could actually we could actually record that soon if you're open to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but I just I just want to say for me, like it's been a really um, exquisite conversation. You know, I, like I said, I really enjoy doing these podcasts because I get to talk to people. <laughs> Yeah, with all this experience and ask you know refine my own understanding and yeah, um, I, I want to you know sort of acknowledge you, tip my hat to you with the, your passion for this work and your knowledge, and also want to ask where people can find out more about you and your work because I'm sure people listening will be curious about it. So great, you can go to kimbarda.org, not kimbarda.com, kimbarda.org, and um, and there's a free. Uh, there's a free uh, inventory there. So you can take the test and get a, a, an initial picture of your interjections, projections, and split ego states and, and kind of the profile. Oh, I'm gosh, I've got a lot of interjects, but not a lot of projections and just a medium amount of ego states. Or I have a lot of ego state, split ego state issues, but not many, you know, it gives you that profile and it's all free. And then it comes with a free PDF and then you can get a kind of a free intro video on it. And then if you want, you can go on and take my courses that'll that talk about this in a little more detail than we can on a podcast. And uh, it goes through um, the three types of shadow and, and how you work with each one a little bit. I go through the hero's journey of shadow. Shadow is a hero's journey. And uh, in the first course, and then the second course, I go through the evolution of shadow resolution in detail about the, the five steps you go through to actually heal any and all shadow. So, mm. Great. And then well, from thanks, there Kim. is a shadow work yeah. community. I have a commune with shadow. Then this is my year long workshop where we all get together. Everybody who's taken those courses gets together and we, we actually do a, an, a, an experiential year long journey through healing shadow. And, and as, as you may have guessed so far, when we go through healing shadow with me, celebration is one of those important pieces. We don't let that get thrown away. Right. So we, we go in, we find the gold and then we celebrate it, you know, and then we go in and do that heroic journey again and find the gold and celebrate it. Um, so the people that have gone that just have loved that course. So uh, I hope somebody chooses to join me in that from this podcast. Beautiful. 
I'd like to take a minute to tell you about our live online coach training, The Art of Developmental Coaching, which is enrolling right now. And it's based upon important developmental theorist work like Robert Keegan, who through research identified these key stages of development that we can grow through in our lives. And the way that we make sense of who we are and what the world is, is fundamentally different at each of these stages of development. And as we grow, we become more mature, more psychologically spacious and more able to operate skillfully in complexity. And often our clients will come to us and the dilemmas, the challenges that they're facing are actually developmental in their nature. They're actually about the deep beliefs they hold about who they are and what the world is. And so this program teaches you to be able to facilitate what Keegan called this subject-object move, where we can listen to our clients and start to reflect back these deep beliefs then the client can begin to separate from them. It's like they were subject to them before. They couldn't actually see that that's who they thought they were and what the world is. And now they start to be able to see it and that changes everything. They grow bigger than it and they can start to have more freedom of choice of action, more skillful means. And so this program, The Art of Developmental Coaching, is all about how can you work in this way developmentally with your clients I really like this program and I'm really appreciating this year that we're also going to be focusing a lot on complexity. It's something we're swimming in right now. The world is complex. We're all feeling that. So we'll be focusing on how can we develop complexity genius and we even be bringing in people like Tyson Yunkaporter to talk about indigenous wisdom and complexity genius. So just a few more things about this. We've got a great faculty who are going to be teaching you. People like Jennifer Garvey Berger. It was only when I discovered her work that I saw how you could actually apply developmental thinking into coaching in a practical way. People like Bob Anderson, Tyson Yunkaporta, Bina Sharma, and others. If you join this program, you're going to be able to join 17 live and interactive sessions. You'll also be able to access practice sessions to deepen your understanding of the work. Everything's recorded and downloadable and transcribed so you can come back to this again and again and again. So if this inspires you, if you want to bring a developmental approach into your coaching, and these are the times for developmental coaching, then you can find out more about this program by heading to coachesrising.com forward slash Art of Developmental Coaching. And enrollment is open now until May the 11th, 2022. Just a a heads up again, if you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com. Put your name in the sign-up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And just want to end by wishing you well, and I'll see you again next time.